0: Hey everyone, and before we start this episode, we just have a couple quick announcements. One is that we will be going on a holiday break, but we'll be back with episode four on December 31st. And then the second thing we want to let you know about is a little something called Patreon. And Rosie, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So the People's History Podcast is completely listener-supported, We've received a grant from Jacobin and from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. But in terms of future seasons, we really need our listeners to pitch in so we can keep telling stories about working class power from around the United States. So if you go to Patreon and search People's History Podcast, you can find us there and you can contribute one, five or ten dollars a month.
0: All right. So if I contribute five dollars a month, what does that get me?
1: So if you donate $5, you'll actually get access to our sister podcast, which is called A People's Anthology. And the whole idea of that podcast is to look at key radical texts from the urban rebellions of the 1960s and 70s that really relate to what we're discussing in this show. So we hope you'll check it out. Consider donating $5 and then you'll be free to join our little book club where we're looking at people from Claudia Jones to Asata Shakur to the Kambahi River Collective. So that's all in our sister podcast, A People's Anthology, which you can get on our Patreon.
0: Great. And then if you subscribe for $10 a month, big spenders out there, you will get sent to you a, I can say, beautiful print that our uh, our comrade Sina made. Uh, We'll put an image up on the website so you can check us out at peopleshistorypod.net. All right? I think that's it.
1: Let's get going with episode three.
0: Episode three. Here we go.
2: See what types of resources we have in Columbia Point. None. We have none. And that's what we're asking for.
3: 5,000 people with nothing to take care of them, you know? Nothing.
4: From Jacobin Magazine, this is People's History.
2: People from the inside experience love. Tenacity, willpower.
4: You're listening to our first six-episode season called The Point, Rebellion and Resistance in Boston Public Housing. The Point was not valued like it is today in terms
5: of it being a piece of property.
6: They're like, we want this property, we want people gone. Yeah. Come
7: on then. This is real intimidation. This is honest-to-goodness. You know, this is life or
3: death here. The police invaded Columbia Point. So the men, they they picked up the arms.
4: Um... I'm Alejandro Ramirez, this time reporting with my co-producers, Connor Geelys and Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez. This is Episode 3, Rent Strike.
2: Now let's get with it. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. It's a hot world. But, brother, America better wake up to this. If they don't, we're going to burn down America. Or they're going to kill 22 million Negroes.
4: By 1967, the U.S. government was working hard to contain unrest across northern cities.
2: We
8: will not tolerate lawlessness. We will not endure violence. This nation will do whatever it is necessary to do to suppress and to punish those who engage in it
4: in boston it was a turbulent year marked by an uprising at the grove hall welfare office it was also an election season
9: all of us are
5: here tonight
9: to pay tribute to one of the greatest americans dr martin luther king
10: (laughs) kevin white an irish catholic democrat from jamaica plain became mayor of the city, partly by positioning himself as an ally of civil rights. The night after Martin Luther King was assassinated, the newly elected Mayor White urged nonviolence to a TV audience, watching a James Brown concert.
9: 24 hours ago, Dr. King died for all of us, black and white. We in Boston will honor Dr. King in peace.
10: But Kevin White was talking one game and playing another. The night before in Franklin Park, black people had gathered and police charged violently into the crowd. Donna Haskins, a Columbia Point resident, remembers the scene.
7: We was in Franklin Park. There used to be this um, gazebo and we were all standing there. It was me, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And all of a sudden, I saw a man run on the stage. And he said Martin Luther King had just been had just got shot. Everybody started screaming and hollering. Oh, and terrible. panic just came over my mom and my dad. And they were saying that the police are coming um, down that road with horses. And as we ran to the car, and I looked back, I see them riding the horses, and my mom and dad put me and my sister in the car, and they said, "Whatever you do, don't look, don't look out the window." And me, as curious as always, I get up, I look out the window, I see dogs eating people, and I see people getting water hose, people screaming. I had not been for days. For days I had not been.
10: Chuck Turner remembers, too. There were
9: skirmishes with the police, and businesses were attacked, and there was just a sense of disillusionment
10: and anger. The popular myth was that Kevin White and James Brown subdued the black masses with their music. But the truth was more complicated. On Friday, thousands demonstrated on the Boston Common and thousands more marched in Roxbury. Along Blue Hill Avenue, an uprising raged until Saturday morning. The night of the concert, tenants from the Bromley Heath Housing Project went into the streets with clubs and chains. Around another housing project, Orchard Park, people looted furniture stores. They stoned police cars and other symbols of the establishment. 400 young protesters charged a high school near the Grove Hall area in Roxbury. They burned an American flag and trashed a picture of John F. Kennedy.
9: <laughs> People were out on the streets. There were things being burned down and uh, a reaction, you know, an emotional reaction to his death and uh, the sense of oppression and uh, an outrage just at the man who struggled so much in a way that was peaceful and not violent, there was a lot of anger that expressed itself through people going into the streets.
10: Chuck Turner met with Stokely Carmichael, now known as Kwame Ture. They decided in that moment to start the Black United Front an umbrella group of black organizations unified around common causes
9: April 3rd, the front formed April 4th King is assassinated and so on the fifth, the front meets they began issuing demands, which Kevin White flatly rejected. They went from white owned business need to be closed immediately to the demands were you know very. Kind of practical, focusing on the nuts-and-bolts struggle that were going on in the community. There was a big rally up in White Stadium, really a sense of, I think, a strong sense of solidarity.
4: Anger was growing, especially around issues of housing. More and more tenants were organizing, challenging urban renewal, highway construction, rising rents, and deteriorating neighborhood conditions. In the South End, which stood on the front lines of urban renewal, people used increasingly militant tactics.
11: Firebombings on both sides, bombing back and forth. One of a landlord's house, one of a tenant's house. There was a couple of more than suspicious firebombings of tenant leaders in the South End.
4: In the same area, a 6,000-strong Puerto Rican community started an emergency tenants' council to stop displacement and gain control over several blocks of land.
10: The newly formed South End Tenants Council organized squats occupying vacant brownstones that landlords were trying to flip. The council also pushed for rent strikes.
2: Tenants should bring a check to the association headquarters in the amount of their monthly rent. The association will keep the checks from the landlords until the apartments meet the regulations set down by the city of Boston housing codes. The association also plans to seek reparations from landlords for those services they have not provided.
10: The Black United Front led a surprise takeover and occupation of a site where homes had recently been bulldozed. Hundreds of supporters joined the occupiers for rallies, music, and donated food. The day's long occupation, which included impromptu soup kitchens and temporary housing, was known as Tent City. It was to protest the onslaught of commercial and luxury development
5: this project must be stopped there's no question about it and it's it's the only question is whether we go back into the street tomorrow and sunday and monday and whether we have to go to jail again and whether we have to face those police again and do whatever is necessary to stop the project there'll be many many more people involved now there'll be i think a great deal more pressure coming to bear on the boston redevelopment authority from various political sources on our mayor kevin white to stop that project to reevaluate what's been happening and to develop it in a way that it takes into into consideration essentially the needs of people as as opposed to the needs of property, property owners.
3: We took over
11: this lot, and a bunch of us got arrested for doing that.
10: King and Turner eventually staged a sit-in at the Boston Redevelopment Authority. They successfully got them to build affordable housing, even if they failed to stop
4: gentrification in the long run. In Cambridge and Somerville, the mood was the same. Tenants blocked evictions in packed city hall meetings. What was
11: our strategy? It had nothing to do with rent control. We thought that was lost.
4: Bill Cunningham was a member of the Cambridge Tenants Organizing Committee, or CTOC. They were both anti slumlord and anti war. Their main mission blocking
11: evictions. We're going to do eviction blocking, we'll set up the telephone tree. That's going to be our main work. Try to start tenant unions if possible, but mainly we're a militant group that's going to fight evictions.
4: One evening, Bill got word about a large,
11: working-class family, the Marchettis, who were being evicted the very next day. Tomorrow morning, the truck's coming, so we have to do something. We went out on teams into the neighborhood and just alerted people by word of mouth, door to door, show up tomorrow morning at 8.30. And so I got there about quarter of nine. There were already 100 people Picketing right So the moving truck comes and it just rams right into the you know the crowd just has to move because they're just <clears throat> right in there, right, But then up comes Ted Parrish's crew from the south end that were, had been fighting over there, where there were bombings going on and squattings going on over there, and they come on and one of them knows one of these guys, so they just go up to them and say, "Look, brother." You take this truck and you park it over here and then you lose your keys. The eviction blocking works. The cops won't arrest anybody. The truck doesn't operate. The eviction doesn't happen.
4: Tenants were mobilizing for better housing conditions and against displacement by urban renewal. Throughout the 60s, tens of thousands of apartments in Chinatown and Roxbury had been lost to highway construction. But now, a broad movement was fighting back. There were you know, a group of people, a network of people that came together. Chuck Turner from the Black United Front helped lead that, too. The Front and their allies occupied a strip of land cleared for a highway known as the Southwest Corridor. You know, we used
9: one part of the land to put a, a trailer that the uh, Black Panther Party used to establish a health center on a part of the cleared land, and a kind of a wooden house was built on another part, saying that if there was no highway, then we could use this land for housing,
4: for health care. According to the front statement, these new buildings would, quote, symbolize the commitment of the black community to use its land for its own development. The name of the anti-highway movement was inspired by some graffiti in Roxbury.
9: On the wall that went along the train corridor that, you know, went down Columbus uh, Avenue, signs
4: sign said People Before Highways. That became the name of the movement, People Before Highways. It culminated on January 25, 1968, when nearly 2,000 residents from Boston, Somerville, and Cambridge stormed the Massachusetts State House. They were protesting plans for multi-lane highways that would further disrupt and displace households.
10: Politicians began to make concessions to the protesters. In 1970, the governor of Massachusetts placed a moratorium on new highway construction. In 1972, he officially stopped the Boston Highway Plan, announcing we were wrong on television.
8: What we misunderstood was what those highways would create. Billions of dollars spent and more and more families uprooted and displaced.
4: At the city level, Kevin White responded to the increasingly militant tenant unions by enacting rent control in 1970. Similar regulations to put a cap on rents were enacted in Cambridge, Somerville, Brookline, and Lynn. The late 60s marked a time of dramatic protests and rent strikes at Columbia Point,
10: which was home to 6,000 people. Point residents had won Better Education, Welfare, and Other Community Resources— but at the same time, they faced increasing discrimination and neglect when it came to basic neighborhood issues. Even after the rebellion at Grove Hall in 1967, the city government was failing to respond adequately. In fact, the government was using tactics of racial segregation to basically ensure that the buildings deteriorated. I mean,
5: listen, if if no one's cleaning the hallways and there's trash piled up for days, that's a problem. My early memories outside is that there was there was grass, and the grass got cut, and then later on it
4: just became weeds. You know. With tensions at their highest, Point residents, along with public housing tenants across the city, decided to take their growing dissatisfaction and aim it squarely at their landlord, the Boston Housing Authority.
2: Landlord, my roof has sprung a leak. Don't you remember? I told you about it way last week. Landlord, landlord, my steps are broken down. When you come up yourself, it's a wonder you don't fall down. Ten bucks you say I owe you. Ten bucks you say is due Well that's ten bucks more than I'll pay it, Till you fix this house up new What? you gonna get eviction orders Turn off my heat Take my furniture and throw it in the street Talking high and mighty. Talk on till you get through. You ain't gonna be able to say another word if I land my fist on you.
3: I said, Listen here, you all had those people without any heat for two or three days right in that housing project, and nobody went there to try to do nothing. In May
4: 1962, the president of the NAACP in Boston, Melnia Cass, filed a complaint to the state. She claimed there had been, and still was, a pattern of segregation in public housing. 17 of the 25 projects in Boston remained 99% white, while African Americans were confined to just eight projects. Some of them, like Columbia Point, were mixed ethnically, while others, like Mission Hill Extension, were designed entirely for black people. These projects all received worse treatment and services. Responding to pressure from civil rights groups and the wider Black Freedom Movement, President John F. Kennedy signed an executive order to prevent racial discrimination in subsidized housing. But like other civil rights legislation, strong language was followed by weak enforcement. The perfect example of this could be found within the Boston Housing Authority, the city office responsible for managing projects. Historically, the BHA was a tool of political patronage, and throughout the 50s and into the 60s, it showed no indication of changing. The entire bureaucracy acted according to personal favors and ignored what they labeled non-white projects.
11: There's a two-tier system in the, in the sense that, that some, some places really are actively being protected and had protectors.
4: Larry Vale is a historian of public housing in Boston
11: if you knew somebody or if your local representative was well connected, there would be all sorts of ways to get your place secured. Certain people had quotas for their people to um, bring them in, whether they were from the church or whether they were from a union or whether they were from a local elected official. Uh, It didn't matter. Uh, There was a sense that that you could get into public housing because of who you knew, not just because of your your needs.
4: This was a standard feature of Boston politics since the 30s. Under Irish mayors, well-connected Irish Americans got priority in the best projects, like Mary Ellen McCormick in Southie. Conditions were kept up by supportive managers and administrators. But at Columbia Point, the maintenance simply stopped. As services became more unreliable, white residents often asked to leave to transfer to South Boston projects. There are many letters to the mayor's office asking for transfers. In a typical one from 1964, Catherine Murphy said, Up until six months ago, this place was bearable, but now I can't go on living here any longer. I work for the Phoenix Insurance Company, and my pay will not permit me to live anywhere, only in a project. Do you think it possible for me to get a transfer to Old Harbor Village in South Boston?
8: It was a, a kind of a conscious segregation, a uh, uh, lazy segregation.
4: Jim Brabel, a historian of local community movements, describes the BHA's practices.
8: It was easier to kind of steer blacks into certain public housing developments and whites into others. It was easier to do it because they didn't want trouble. They didn't want to have to deal with any potential racial problems. And the board was really not interested in doing well for the residents so much as uh, doing well for themselves. They had downtown offices. They had chauffeurs. Uh, they had staffs and secretaries. And it was really
5: one of the most poorly run public housing authorities at the time. you got to ask yourself that question. Why? Why Columbia Point? Why did Columbia Point deteriorate like that in those two places? did.
4: Charlie Titus remembers what was happening in Columbia Point during the 1960s.
5: So if you go up the road a mile, you got Old Harbor and Mariela McCormick housing projects. You didn't see the same deterioration there you saw in Columbia Point. They could make a call and get a fence fixed. They could make a call and get a door fixed. They had access to power and resources, so their housing did not deteriorate. The people who lived in Columbia Point didn't have that same access. I mean, I think that the Boston Housing Authority just let it go. They just let it go.
4: Management was harsher to non-white projects. For example, they'd retaliate if tenants kicked up a fuss. When Point residents picketed the city dump, the Boston Housing Authority and mayoral staff labeled the events interracial riots. They responded by evicting several black families. The NAACP was going to push discrimination charges against the Boston Housing Authority, but backed down during negotiations with the mayor. It seemed that, once again, Columbia Point residents would need to take matters into their own hands.
6: Our interest was not in the political structure. Our interest was very naive then and very simplistic. Please close the dump. Get out of our lives. We want this community to ourselves. Some 500-odd people came out to the streets.
10: This is Joanne Ross. In 1963, she and other Point residents formed the TAC, or Tenant Association Council. It was formed with the seven other non-white projects.
6: I profited tremendously by being one of the, the uh, outspoken people of Columbia Point, one of the organizers of that community. It just changed my whole way of viewing things and my whole style of living and the kinds of things that I was willing to accept now as a woman alone.
10: The council, formed mostly of people of color, was designed to pressure the BHA to end, quote, isolated racial and economic ghettos. People were noticing that a lot of the fundamental problems had to do with the BHA's system of discrimination because you could see it right there in the project.
5: We had, I'd say, segregation within the development. Way up Mount Vernon Street was mostly elderly, white Entering the projects um, at the other end of Monticello was mostly white. Up Montpelier was mostly black. Here's Charlie Titus again. When when you have uh, people who move out and the apartment gets trashed and it doesn't get fixed, you know, those kinds of maintenance issues were happening all the time. So, you know, you got 28 families living on top of each other and not a lot of maintenance going on, not a lot of care for the place. It's kind of hard to have pride a place where you live in that kind of a situation. So, you know, as the maintenance deteriorated, as the policies of placement continued, um, the place started deteriorating.
10: Rats were becoming more and more of a problem. This became one of the first issues for the Tenant Association Council. A rat actually bit a baby at Columbia Point in 1967. After that point leaders, including a woman named Inez Middleton, went directly to the housing authority. They testified that there were atrocious conditions at the project due to neglect. The BHA promised to start a rat extermination program. Meanwhile, nearly 3,000 residents at Orchard Park, a black housing development in Roxbury, started experiencing heating issues across several years. When their 30-year boilers started to break down, residents joined up with the TAC, who flooded the BHA with calls to get the boilers replaced. But the BHA just wasn't being responsive enough. Heat was still going on and off, and services like snow shoveling were basically non-existent. Many tenants didn't know what to do. Mrs. Nora Priest, a spokesperson for the TAC, said, Tenants are afraid to bring their problems to the management fearing hostility and retaliation. Tenants at Columbia Point began holding regular meetings about the rats. And they were also organizing around other issues, like displacement. Specifically, neighbors were being sent eviction papers without any reason or advance warning. With each broken promise, the BHA was proving to be Boston's biggest and most brutal slumlord. In October of 1967, the Tenants Council met with the BHA and declared that there had been a breakdown in relations between tenants and local management. They asked for big changes, like, for example, participation at the policy-making level of the Housing Authority. Partly because of these tenants, and partly because of the rebellion at Grove Hall, liberal politicians could no longer ignore the demands coming from public housing tenants. HUD, the housing administration that started under Johnson, actively encouraged management and tenant councils to negotiate
4: and gave money to support that effort. But then Kevin White, the mayoral candidate from JP, came into office. He defeated Ed Logue, the former Redevelopment Authority member, as well as Louise Day Hicks, the notorious pro-segregation school board member. Housing was a big part of his political campaign. One of his slogans, when landlords raise rents, Kevin White raises hell. But White did nothing to address issues at Columbia Point. In October 1968, the residents lost heat for a week during an unexpected cold spell as the result of poorly maintained boilers. That was the last straw. Here's one of our co-producers, Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez. In
12: 1968, the scene at Columbia Point was getting more desperate. Sandy Young was an early community leader at the project. This is from an oral history recorded in the 1980s.
6: I remember when we had roaches and there were rats. As tenants, we were being shafted. We were being uh, criticized. We weren't, our rights were being denied. This is the days when we were not getting from BHA, what we were supposed to be getting. This is, this is when, they, when you saw the broken windows and the broken glass in the streets and the trash in the streets and the trash in the hallways. The broken doors, uh, doors hanging off the hinges, that was BHA's responsibility, and they were not fixing them. Former resident
12: Donna Haskins remembers this exact thing, the buildings breaking down and the housing authority failing to do repairs. We spoke with her and her mom, Dorothy.
7: One day, the tenants were coming in and they was complaining about the apartment and the condition of the apartment and how the windows were needed to get fixed, the doors, the holes in the wall, the rodent problem, um, the roaches. And they started complaining and everything. And um, my mom and all of them decided to say, hey, you know, we're going to do a rent strike. Went on when we went on the rent strike because their apartments needed things to be fixed in their apartments.
12: This is Dorothy Haskins, one of the key figures in welfare rights. We
7: were the strongest organization out there.
12: Dorothy says that when the heat went out, she helped circulate a petition around one of the buildings, 119 Monticello Ave. We will refuse to pay rent, the petition said, until the elevator is fixed and the hall and stairwells are properly lit and cleaned. One by one, tenants signed the petition, adding their own issues in the margins. No heat, one note said. Toilet overflowing, said another. Mailbox broken. How do you go
7: about organizing that? You go to -to door-to-door, and you get a copy of their rent book with all the information in it, and you have the lease, and you just meet on it. Meet with the key people.
12: The journalist Alan Lupo covered the story. He reported how 20 families in the building decided to stop paying rent until the BHA met their demands. The residents got their rent money together, held it in an escrow account, and refused to pay it to the BHA until they got the necessary maintenance done. It was a short term success in that it got some repairs to happen and actually pressured Ellis Ash, the BHA administrator, to get more maintenance funding from the federal government. Kevin White, the mayor, was starting to feel the heat. In 1969, he made one small concession. Two years after tenants had demanded it, the mayor finally reformed the five-member board of the Boston Housing Authority. White appointed two public housing tenants and a labor organizer. Together, the three called themselves the tenant-oriented majority. One of those newly appointed members spoke to us about the BHA's system of patronage.
3: I'm Doris Bunty. I lived in Orchard Park for roughly 16 years. Every development was not treated equally, nor were the resources distributed evenly. It all had to do with who you know, the condition, and upkeep. were all a part of that system. So if you've got somebody you need to stick somewhere, give them a job, you promise somebody, or whatever... Then we got them at the BHA, and those people back then, you know, they got um, tenure, and so it was very, very difficult changing the BHA, because you could change the policies all you want, but you couldn't change behaviors. Once the three of us were there, then of course it couldn't be business as usual. And so in order to turn things around, you know, we had to get to the root of things.
12: Doris Bunty, who is an African-American, witnessed racist hiring practices within the BHA. The conservative old guard was still giving jobs to friends over, say, tenants who actually lived in the community.
3: I know there was a young man who, who said that he had been applying to be a laborer for something like eight years. And he said, I never hear from them. But I fill out an application every year. And so I went down to personnel, and I asked them to look up his name. And sure enough, there was this folder, and there were like five years' worth of applications. And in the comment area, in very large letters, it said, N-O-N hyphen W-H-I-T-E. They had checked all his references and everything, but they never responded to him all those years. The
12: tenant-oriented board proposed several basic reforms like ensuring maintenance was kept up in all projects and making BHA jobs more open to residents. They also tried to make tenant selection a better process, making sure the neediest got good housing, but their ideas weren't being implemented. Part of the problem was the BHA was under more financial stress. Tenants at pruitt Igo, a famous public housing project in St. Louis, had recently gone on a rent strike themselves in protest of run-down apartments. In response, the Massachusetts Senator Ed Brooke introduced an amendment for public housing that capped the amount of rent at 30% of household income. While this helped to alleviate the burden on renters, lower incomes meant smaller maintenance budgets. From 1950 to 1975, the income of the average public housing tenant declined by half. Without a subsidy from the government to make up the difference, public housing lost most of its funding. Columbia Point residents were not satisfied by the new progressive managers of the BHA. Despite the new tenant-oriented majority, conditions were still declining. Even after renters went on strike, rats were still infesting apartments and common spaces. Mothers at the project decided to take their issues to the local press, announcing a serious problem. The BHA had promised rat extermination years ago, but clearly that wasn't happening.
6: We had a lot of the rats and the roaches and things like that, and we had to fight to get the exterminators to come in. So in order to get BHA to do something, they had to do something to get their attention.
12: Mary Manning was another welfare rights advocate. She and the other mothers decided to make a statement. During a Christmas time meeting of the BHA in 1969, they brought Doris Bunty and the rest of the board a gift. Historian Jim Vrabel recalls the episode.
8: There was a scene at a uh, Christmas meeting of the Boston Housing Authority Board when they brought in presents, which included dead rats hanging from a small Christmas tree and cockroaches in glass jars that were still wriggling.
6: I'm not sure exactly who started it, but I know they were catching them and and saying, look, this is what we're going to do, you know. And and it was was interesting because they set it up on the desk in the office, and, uh, you know, it wasn't pleasant. I don't think they liked it too much. But, I mean, it woke up people's eyes, yeah. and it made sure that pe- that they knew we weren't going to stand for it, that people in the project were not going to stand for it anymore, mm-hmm. that they wanted something done, and they wanted it done right then and there.
12: It wasn't just pest problems. Tenants complained that they suffered break-ins because their locks were shoddy. The buildings, now 15 years old, were literally falling apart. When the BHA administrator toured Columbia Point after Christmas, he saw leaky roofs and cracked sidewalks, disrepair and vermin. He saw hundreds of vacancies, a result of poor living conditions. Sandy Young told a reporter, it could be very beautiful here if we could just correct some of these problems. A few days later, Columbia Point residents went further. On New Year's, They presented the board with another gift, this time just two stale cookies and a note that said, thanks for nothing. Then a severe snowstorm hit Boston. For three days, Columbia Point residents were stuck in their homes without light, heat, or telephone service. The mothers, disobeying the official rules laid out for the tenant policy councils, marched into a BHA meeting, disrupting it, and carrying a broken door that had fallen off one of the apartments. Sandy urged the board to come down to the point to hold their next meeting on the peninsula to see what was really going on. Some tenants were afraid. Their stuff was getting stolen. The BHA didn't provide the most basic things, like doors with working locks. At the meeting, tenants wore armbands with their apartment numbers written on them. One of the Columbia Point leaders spoke up. They said, If the new majority represents a change, It should be to treat residents as individuals, not numbers. Doris and her allies on the board knew something was seriously wrong. They said they were constrained, both financially and bureaucratically. Proposed reforms were thwarted and delayed by a new BHA administrator, Dan Finn, a conservative lawyer close to Kevin White.
3: We wanted Dan Finn to go away because the policies that we came up with weren't being implemented, things that would make life better for residents.
12: More specifically, Finn delayed reforms and, according to the Boston Globe, quote, introduced an austerity program that would cut already inadequate services for tenants. As tensions rose between Kevin White and the tenant-oriented board, things became personal. Knowing that the board was unhappy with Finn... White and Finn alleged that John Connolly, the other public housing tenant on the board, had illegally used public money for private use. Connolly denied the charges, saying they were politically motivated. Doris defended her fellow tenant, Connolly. And then going a step further, they held a press conference where they fired Dan Finn live on television.
3: And so um, the following morning, (laughs) my phone rang about 7 o'clock, and it was the Herald. And they said, how do you respond to the charges? And I'm like, charges? What charges? And they said, oh, the mayor preferred five charges of misconduct in office against you. How do you respond? I said, I haven't read the charges. I don't have any response at this time. And then the phone just kept ringing and ringing and ringing.
12: After Dan Finn's firing, Kevin White wanted Doris out. And he wasn't just going to wait for her term to end. White was going to have her removed. The only way for a mayor to remove a housing authority member was by proving, quote, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or misconduct of office at a hearing. However, the law providing for the removal procedures doesn't say much about what the trial should look like, So Kevin White drew up five misconduct charges against Doris and designed a trial himself, where he would act as both prosecutor and judge. The trial took 13 days and generated thousands of pages of transcripts. By day 11, Tom Atkins, the only black city counselor, called the trial a clear example of a kangaroo court.
8: And it led to a spectacle that went on for weeks and gravitated everyone's attention to City Hall and to the issue of public housing. The, the testimony revolved around uh, the a mileage amount that you could charge for using a BHA vehicle, uh, stationary, travel, stamps. I mean, they were very, very small potatoes in the scheme of things. And uh, public housing tenants and their allies, and especially people in the black community because of Doris Bunty, was an African-American woman, Revolted against white. But the spectacle of all these mostly white men who were politicians sitting in judgment of a black woman from public housing was kind of a a raw and naked image of what the administration, the white administration, and most city administrations at the time were all about. And it really galvanized support for Mrs. Bunty, a lot in the black community, of course but across the city as well. Uh, They saw that this was the real Kevin White, and uh, no one liked it uh, in the neighborhoods.
12: Here's how Doris remembers it.
3: There was all the media that was available in the city, and there were residents from every development in the city. Every day they came, and every day they all brought flowers.
12: At the end of the trial, Kevin White found that there was substantial evidence to rule against Doris on three charges, amounting to misconduct in office. He recommended her removal, which the counselors narrowly confirmed.
3: We had the hearing. And I lost in the hearing, I think it was seven to six. And of course, rumor has it that Gerald O'Leary, who had been a city counselor, had gotten... I don't know, 50-some jobs in return for his vote. He was a swing vote. And so I was removed. And then my lawyer took it to the Superior Court, and the Superior Court found me not guilty and ordered my reinstatement. And then the mayor appealed it to the state Supreme Court who upheld the superior court and again ordered my reinstatement. And then we had to threaten to take out uh, contempt of court charges against the city councilors, the ones who didn't want to put me back in.
12: Doris was restored to her position in 1972, though Kevin White never spoke to her again.
3: And he said... Doris is my biggest political mistake.
12: This trial marked the point when Kevin White turned against public housing. Here's Jim Vrabel.
8: It symbolizes the politics against uh, community respect and the idea that uh, politicians and those in public office were... Uh, arrogant enough to think that they should call all the shots and that they didn't have to listen to people in the neighborhoods and especially the people who lived in public facilities at all. It was a kind of a litmus test for him that if you push back against him, he was more about controlling things and concentrating power in the mayor's office than he was in uh, allowing that power to be shared by people in the neighborhoods.
12: Not long after Doris moved on, the BHA retrenched back to being a patronage network for the mayor and his friends. In 1971, Kevin White sought out a new public housing policy, one of austerity, law, and order. At Columbia Point, conditions continued to slide.
10: If Doris Bunty won the battle, Kevin White won the war. Because when Kevin White placed a black woman on the stand, he effectively accused black women in general of cheating the system. He was tapping into a familiar trope.
6: Black women have for decades, decades even before Nixon, been seen as the breeders of social ills.
10: Rhonda Williams is a historian at Vanderbilt, currently visiting at MIT. She's the author of Concrete Demands, The Search for Black Power in the 20th Century, as well as a book called The Politics of Public Housing.
6: Black women have been the optimal symbol for all that's wrong with America, and therefore removing the onus uh of the social ills, the inequalities, the racial demonization, hiding it and removing the onus from the state in terms of how people are treated or not treated right so they become they can, they become blamed for having children. Uh, out of wedlock as if white women don't have children out of wedlock or white middle class women don't have children out of wedlock, right? As if there's something wrong um, automatically with that, people having children and wanting and and needing support. They're being blamed for all that's going wrong in urban areas. Uh, They're being blamed for what's going wrong in public housing because once these low-income people and low-income women in particular and low-income black women in particular become the majority of public housing complexes or disproportionate percentage of public housing complexes and things go down. Well, let's not talk about demise and funding and let's not talk about, you know, racial inequality and racial demonization, racial discrimination, non-access to the job market and differences in wages, all of those things that kind of create the situations that women find themselves in and black families find themselves in and then have to actually try to gain access to these kinds of minimal limited services so that they can survive. Let's not talk about the ways in which the suburbs were off limits to African-American families and women trying to raise their families. Let's not talk about the ways in which the uh, educational system didn't serve African-American families, which also impacts jobs, which also impacts incomes. Let's just all blame it on black women having kids. Or let's just all blame it on Black women who are living in decrepit housing and the blame is on them for the decrepit housing as opposed to the lack of resources and the care and the concern of the housing itself or the minimalist structure from the very beginning. It's a a shortcut to not really dealing with racial discrimination, capitalism, and the role of the state in perpetuating inequality in the United States.
10: We can think of Kevin White's scapegoating of Doris Bunty as just one example of the ways in which politicians were starting to blame structural problems on the individual behavior of poor people. While these so-called culture of poverty arguments arose under Kennedy and Johnson, it was Nixon who actually used the myth to justify policies that dismantled public housing and built up the carceral state.
11: As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home.
4: Across the country, public housing was in the crosshairs like never before. In 1972, the year Nixon was reelected, Pruitt-Igoe was demolished. It was where the major rent strike had happened. Just four years before.
11: Today is demolition day at the crew at Igo. Door wrecking company will explode the supporting columns from an eleven-story vacant high-rise.
4: In January 1973, Nixon declared an 18-month moratorium on federal housing subsidies, which meant no funding for Columbia Point. In short, austerity made organizing conditions at Columbia Point far more difficult. During 1973, families at another building, 15 Montpelier Road, once again tried to get a rent strike going. They demanded the removal of lead paint, repairs to broken elevators, and the replacement of broken locks. The protest spread to two other buildings, but this time, the BHA didn't seem to mind that tenants weren't paying rent. A lot of residents were behind on their payments anyways. Under these conditions, a rent strike would not be effective. The BHA could just ignore their demands, and they did. For tenants, it was clear. As the terrain shifted, resistance would need to take on a different shape.
0: People get ready. as a train a-coming.
2: You don't need no baggage. You just get on.
4: People's History is produced by Allison Bruzek, Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez, Connor Gillies, Rosie Gillies, Kainat Khan, and me, Alejandro Ramirez. Research help from Patrick King, Caitlin Rose, and Ed Paget. Fact-checking and editing by Laura Foner and Bill Cunningham. Editorial help from Ben Shapiro, Alyssa Quart, and David Wallace. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson, and our score is by Visitor, which is a project of Liz Harris and Ilyas Ahmed. People's History Podcast is an independent radio series. It is
10: not related to the book A People's History of the United States or related projects.
4: A People's History is presented by Jacobin Magazine with help from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Thank you for listening.